Hello and welcome to today's episode of The Quad Shot, where we help you down and digest the day's most pertinent cancer news. It's January 20th, 2020. Welcome to The Quadcast. First up, powder analysis. It's hypothesized that talcum powder-induced inflammation and or chemical exposure in the reproductive tract leads to malignancy. This huge study, published in JAMA 2020 by O'Brien, pulls prospectively collected data from over 250,000 women in four large cohort studies, including the Nurses' Health Study, the Nurses' Health Study 2, the Sisters' Study, and the Women's Health Initiative Observational Study. While not a question that would have come to our minds, all of these happen to ask women about the frequency of use of powder on their genitals. Because women were questioned long before a possible association with malignancy was established, there is less bias than in recent case control studies. Over a third of women use genital powder, with 22% using it frequently, which was defined as at least once per week, and 10% used it long-term. Overall, there was no association with either the frequency or duration of powder use and the cumulative risk of ovarian cancer by age 70, hazard ratio 1.08, the confidence interval that crossed 1. However, among the subset of women with an intact reproductive tract, the hazard ratio was 1.13, with a confidence interval of 1.01 to 1.26, and an even higher 1.19 if they use the powder frequently. To complicate matters, the difference in hazard ratios between women with patent and non-patent reproductive tracts was not significant. This led the authors to conclude that there was no statistical association between powder use and cancer, but also that their 250,000-plus participant cohort was underpowered to detect extremely small increases in risk. It is further pointed out that the effect size in the patent reproductive tract cohort is so small that it shouldn't be selectively highlighted by the statistically unsophisticated reader as evidence of a relationship. The bottom line is, in this huge cohort study, the use of talcum powder on the perineum was not clearly associated with an increased risk of ovarian cancer. Up second, slow simmer. Two years ago, we learned that third-generation EGFR-TKI osimertinib achieved unprecedented progression-free survival times as upfront therapy for EGFR-mutated non-small cell lung cancer. Of course, we're talking about the landmark FLORA trial that randomized over 550 patients with locally advanced or metastatic, 95% of which were metastatic, EGFR mutant non-small cell lung cancer to upfront osimertinib orally once daily versus physician's choice of the older gefitinib or erlotinib orally once daily. The primary endpoint primary because it could place osimertinib on insurance coverage list two years sooner of progression-free survival was drastically improved 
from a median of 10 to 19 months with the use of osimertinib. Now, we have reporting of the secondary endpoint that, of course, is primary in our hearts, overall survival. And the median overall survival was significantly improved from 32 to 39 months with use of osimertinib. Importantly, patients in ARM2 with a T790M mutation after progression were eligible to cross over to osimertinib, and 31% did so. And this likely diminished the gap in overall survival that we would have seen otherwise. Plus, the rates of toxicity between the arms were virtually identical. Perhaps most celebrated should be the long wait time for survival events across the board. The bottom line is, osimertinib, just like ducamitinib, given first line for advanced EGFR-mutated non-small cell lung cancer, ineligible for definitive surgery or radiation, has proven to confer superior overall survival times when compared to older generation EGFR TKIs, thanks to the New England Journal publication by Ramallingham. Up next, high tangents. Recently, we learned about the Arctic genomic classifier that predicts local regional recurrence risk and benefit of breast-only radiation in women with early-stage N0 breast cancer. Unfortunately, this did nothing to secure the forever-swinging controversy of regional nodal irradiation in women with N1 disease. With the pendulum currently resting on heavy regional nodal irradiation, following the MA20 and EORTC22922 trials, one of the problems is that enrollees were all over the map. Almost crazily, one can come up with clinical scenarios, such as a stage 1 medial tumor, that could have been included on both the RNI and the radiation omission trials. While we're awaiting results from ongoing trials such as MA39, looking at regional nodal irradiation omission for low oncotype recurrence score, we have studies like this one, as published in JAMA Oncology 2020 by Woodward et al. It retrospectively analyzed tissue among postmenopausal women with hormone receptor positive, node positive breast cancer that were enrolled on SWOG S8814. Overall, those with a low recurrence score less than 18, had a lower 10-year local regional recurrence rate, 10%, compared to those with intermediate or high recurrence scores at 17% risk of local regional recurrence at 10 years. A large proportion had mastectomy without radiation, and recurrence score remained a predictor of 10-year local regional recurrence even among the subset who had 1 to 3 positive lymph nodes. Unfortunately, since the trial compared systemic therapies, there's no real info on radiation interaction with oncotype recurrence score, meaning that we don't really know whether recurrence score predicts for a benefit with radiation. Though, one may assume the persistent relative risk reduction seen throughout the decades with radiation would likely still hold. The bottom line is, among women with hormone receptor positive, node positive breast cancer, oncotype recurrence score is associated with risk of local regional recurrence, even among women with N1 disease treated 
with mastectomy. Up next, meal deal. Everyone knows that you should eat your vegetables. In fact, there is an increasing amount of data that suggests that dietary habits are linked to the risk of developing multiple types of cancer. Despite this, randomized trials of diet and clinical outcomes in oncology are pretty rare. Here, authors impressively randomized over 400 men with early stage prostate cancer to active surveillance, plus or minus vegetables. Well, more specifically, the Men's Eating and Living Study, CALGB 70807, as published in JAMA 2020 by Parsons et al., was a prospective randomized study at 91 U.S. centers enrolling men aged 50 to 80 with prostate cancer that was grade group 1 or 2, clinical T2A or less, with a PSA that was less than 10. So basically, these are all low-risk patients. Patients were randomized to a counseling behavioral intervention by telephone that promoted consumption of seven or more daily vegetable servings, or a control group that received written information about diet and prostate cancer. The primary endpoint was time to progression, which was defined as having one of the following, a PSA that rose above the level of 10, a PSA doubling time that was less than three years, or an upgrade in tumor size on subsequent prostate biopsy. All of that to say, there was no statistical difference in time to progression between the groups. 44% were alive without progression after the intervention, compared to 41% otherwise. What currently remains unclear, though, is if all of this came down to men just simply not following verbal cues. The bottom line is, a homegrown behavioral intervention to increase vegetable consumption unfortunately failed to reduce the risk of early-stage prostate cancer progression. Up next, get them while they're hot. This fascinating basic science work demonstrates intratumoral injection of the regular old flu vaccine converts quote-unquote cold tumors with little to no evidence of immune infiltration into quote-unquote hot tumors primed for increased local and even distant responses to immune checkpoint inhibitors, thanks to Newman et al. in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Up next, the Beaumont study. Instead of giving an Alzheimer's drug to lessen the neurocognitive effects of whole brain radiation, this clinical trial is offering whole brain radiation to lessen the neurocognitive effects of Alzheimer's. Learn more details by clicking on the link in the newsletter, thanks to Fontanesi. Finally, Pronto. Check out the implementation of an experimental flash proton therapy system at the University of Pennsylvania. They designed the system to deliver essentially the same beam of protons at either standard or flash dose rates to limit the number of potential variables. Standard dose rates are 0.5 to 1 gray per second, 
and flash dose rates are 60 to 100 gray per second. In line with prior studies, flash proton therapy did lessen damage to proliferating intestinal crypt cells while maintaining the same mole effect on tumor cells. Thanks to the Red Journal publication 2020 by Diffendorfer. This concludes today's episode of The Quad Shot. If you like what you've heard, please consider giving us a five-star rating and subscribing to our podcast. Also, check out our website at www.quadshotnews.com and subscribe to our newsletter. We'll catch you next time.